Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, I went to Harvard College. I, I usually don't mention that at all, and I certainly don't begin that way, but I'm doing that for a reason, because I didn't grow up in a Torah-observant family. I grew up in a very proudly Jewish family. I started keeping Shabbos when I was 24 years old, and it had been brewing inside me for, for a lifetime. I I was reading Hasidic stories when I was eight years old, and I started going to Reb Shlomo Karlvachshel when I was 14, and there's a whole story there. By the way, if you're interested in, in seeing that story, there's on YouTube, if you look up Sojourns in Hollywood with, with my name, uh, there's a talk that I gave in, in Cape Town, South Africa, that has my kind of, the story of my Jewish journey is, is right there. So you might want to check that out. But anyway... The point I'm trying to make is that I committed to keeping Shabbos when I was 24, and that was kind of the major turning point in my life, at least spiritually speaking. Now, I'm bringing this up and, and mentioning the, the, the Harvard factor, too, for, for, for a reason here, which is I didn't understand at the time. It was, it was sort of like incredibly perplexing to me as strange as this is about to sound, how it is that, that, that my friends didn't see what I was saying. And it raised a larger question to me, which is, how is it that there's so many very intellectual people, people who, you know, who are brilliant, like, like you know, giant IQs, brilliant, brilliant people who don't believe in God? How, how is that the case? And so I gave it a lot of thought, and I came up with the following that I want to share with you. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that there are two primary ways of looking at the world. One is from the bottom up, you're very much a resident of this world with the laws of nature and everything that you've learned, and then you extrapolate upwards toward the spiritual, toward God. Another way of looking at the world is from the top down, from a recognition that there's a God, and then seeing the rest of the creation from God's perspective, so to speak. Again, the question is, how is it that there's so many smart people who don't believe in God? So the normal way people grow up, if they're not growing up in a already religiously observant family, is they go to school and you learn different things. You, you learn math. You learn science like biology, chemistry, physics, world history. And then at a certain point, the subject of Torah will come up in your life, maybe. And you try to fit in what, you, what you're hearing about God into that which you already know. And sometimes you'll hear something nice. And maybe you'll hear a few nice things, hopefully. But oftentimes what will happen is you'll hear some things that contradict what you've grown up with. Things that don't perfectly sync with your world history. Things that don't perfectly sync with your knowledge of physics or chemistry or biology or something like this. And then... At a certain point, most people will go, well, this is very nice for you. It's not for me. <laughs> like, in other words, there's too much cognitive dissonance here. Your worldview doesn't sync with what I know to be true. So moving on. Now, let me give you the top-down perspective from the point of view that there is a God. So let me begin this way. Darwin brought to the world this amazing idea that all of life begins with a single cell and then evolved toward the incredibly complex entities that are human beings. So here's my question. Where did that single cell come from? And where did the fabric of time and space come from in order to nurture and house that cell? That's my question. All right, so now let's, that's the origin of life, right? So that's, that's my question on the origin of life. 
Now, let me ask another question. And this involves the origin of the universe itself. So believe it or not, it, it might sound to our ears today a little bit nutty, but from the earliest times of like Greek philosophy to not so much more than a hundred years ago, a lot of academia held on to the thought that the world always existed. Where did the world come from? The world just always was. Does that really make sense? Never mind. <laughs> that's just, that's what they had. And then comes the modern physics revolution. And all of a sudden they say, no, no, no. There was a starting point to creation. And this popularly is known as the Big Bang. All the laws of physics and, and everything else comes from this initial explosion. That's the Big Bang. So here's my question. Where did that explosion come from? And where did the fabric of time and space come from in order to house that which exploded? That, that's my question. Okay, so we have a question on the origin of life. Where did that single cell come from? And we have a question on the origin of the universe itself. Where did that initial explosion, that initial Big Bang come from? So if you ask scientists, they will tell you, we don't know. We don't know. Because science takes you to the very initial moments that can be documented in terms of matter. But the step before that, they, they say that's, you know, as, as a good friend of mine used to say, my name is Paul. And that's between y'all, meaning to say, that's like, that's none of our business. Like, what happened before that? We don't know. Okay, so we say we do know. We say that it's God, that it's, that it's God, that there's a creator. And then once, this is now again the top-down view. Once you start as your premise that there's a God who's infinite and can do absolutely anything, and that nothing is difficult for God, once that is your premise, then everything gets answered. Then there are no contradictions anymore. Everything is answered. Now you say to me, well, wait a second. There are certain things that are still mysteries and we don't know. Absolutely, 100%. But there are no contradictions. And let me explain what I mean by that. So I heard in the name of the Rambam that there can't be any contradiction between science and religion. And if there is, you either have the science wrong or you have the religion wrong. Meaning you don't understand the verses of the Torah properly. And the reason why they have to agree is because science and the Torah have the same author. And what is science? You ready for the best description of science ever, as far as I'm concerned? All science is, is God's own explanation of how he does things. That's all science is. It's God's own explanation of how he does things. That's all. So they have to agree. Science and Torah have to agree. And if they don't, you either have the science wrong or you have the Torah wrong. That's all. So, so now you say to me, okay, so there are no fundamental contradictions, but... There's certain things that I don't understand, and that's appropriate. Because can one single cup hold all the oceans of the world? Can you fit all the waters of all the oceans of the world into one single drinking cup? No, of course not. So how is it that my mind can hold the infinity of God? It, the answer is it can't. It can't, because God is infinite, and we are his creations, and therefore we are a subset of God. So as the Kutzke Rebbe says, I would never worship a God I understood. Why? Because if you completely understand God, then you're also God. So what do you need God for? In other words, one of the premises of God is that he can't be understood. 
Do you understand that? The absolute premise of God is he can never be completely understood. So if you say, well, why is this and why is that? And therefore, this must be a contradiction to the existence of God. No, this is an affirmation of the existence of God. Because we can never completely understand reality because God is infinite. So from the academic perspective, again, people grow up with the foundation of their truths to be the biology I'm learning, the world history I'm learning, the physics I'm learning, the chemistry I'm learning. By the way, physics is, is wonderfully supportive of the Torah vision. Wonderfully supportive. The more we know of physics, the more we see everything we've been saying of for thousands of years now has mathematics to support it. But the basic academic approach is once you start to hear contradictions, then you go, well, I can no longer accept this because one's foundation is not the premise that there's a God who's created absolutely everything. So a lot of people just walk away. But do you want to hear something incredibly ironic? Almost almost hilarious. Almost actually hilarious. Is that I think the premise where you say that there's a creator who made absolutely everything and the fact that we can't understand everything is the more rational thought. See, I think it's, it's actually less rational to think that you can understand absolutely everything. But that's... Here, l- let me explain better. You see... I was thinking about it, and I think one of the big divisions that exists in the world today is there's one camp in the world which believes that we are on the road to eventually knowing absolutely everything. We don't know everything, but we are on the road to knowing everything. That's one camp. The other camp is... How can we possibly know everything? God is infinite and we're finite. It doesn't make any sense that we should know everything. In fact, it's actually impossible for us to know everything. Now, to me, that actually is the more intellectual approach. That's the irony. To think that you can absolutely know everything, I think, is actually not rational. Now, the reason why that's so funny is that they look at someone who believes in God and they go, no, that's not rational. (laughs) Because you can't prove it. So someone was asking me, therefore, the more you know, the less you know. And I said back to him, I said, if you're lucky. I said, most people, the more they know, the more they think they know. That attitude is, at best, that's naive. At worst, it's, it's, it's quite arrogant. One has to actually uproot in their mind the predisposition to think the more you know, the more you actually know. It's a sign of the purity of one's soul. And it's a gift and it's something that we all have to work on as we learn more to realize how much less we actually know. And it's not a contradiction. In fact, it's a blessing. It's a blessing. Because, you know, there's a a wonderful book, an awesome, awesome book, about a woman, Tova Mordechai. She didn't know that she was Jewish, and she was in this super strict Christian convent in England. And, I mean, to the point where they actually served rotten food in order to teach people not to be attached to anything in this world. And she rose in the ranks of this uh, denomination, and she was giving uh, speeches before the congregation. And she talks about a moment where she stood in front of her bookshelf, and she goes, I already know all of this. And then she has this next thought, If I already know everything about God, there is something wrong with this path that I'm on. Can you imagine the humility and the beauty of her soul 
that she understood that if she thinks she knows everything there is about God, imagine her standing in front of her bookcase and going, I already know all of this. And that's a problem. Well, she finds out, it's this amazing story, she finds out that in fact she's Jewish and she leaves the church and she becomes this Torah Jew and an amazing, amazing, courageous, amazing story. But this idea that the more you know, the less you know, if you're lucky, if you're lucky, is a great example of the intersection between one's intellectual development and one's personality development. So many people don't realize how essential to the Torah path it is to evolve and to refine and to purify and to elevate your personality. It's not just who can learn the most or who knows the most. It's who can take what they've learned and purify themselves the most. And then the world around them as a consequence. Do you get it? When we talk about tzaddikim, like our holy ones, holy men and women, sometimes they talk about their photographic memories and intellectual feats, but most of the time they talk about how nice they were (laughs) and how giving they were and how they'd go out of their way for others. Isn't Isn't that funny that Here you're talking about people, to use Rabbi Green's phrase, who had brains the size of planets. And yet, when people talk about him, he's like, oh, he was so nice. (laughs) That's by design. Because they used their massive reservoir of Torah to purify themselves. You, You want a litmus test of whether you're climbing the spiritual ladder in terms of Torah, how much are you thinking about other people? How much are you going out of your way? That That is a litmus test. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, this thought in a very beautiful way. He said, in science, if you want to know how high someone is, measure their distance from the ground. In other words, How far away are they from the earth? That's how high they are, right? Like a rocket. Makes sense. He said in Torah, if you want to know how high a person is, how holy a person is, measure how close they are to another person. See, it it all becomes about closeness, caring. That's the measure. Okay, so just to summarize it, Why are there so many intellectual people who don't understand the existence of God and the truth of Torah? Well, they're starting from their academic building blocks, and then they see contradictions once they learn things that don't fit perfectly in with that. What's the other approach? The other approach is not going from the bottom and then building up to the heavens, But start with the heavens, because ultimately, if you ask enough questions to a scientist, but why this? But why why that? But why this? But why that? But why this? Eventually, you're going to get the person to say, we don't know. (laughs) So if the ultimate answer is we don't know, and that's from the academic perspective. So we're starting there. So they're ending there. So it's the same thing. But wait a second. No one can convince me that this exquisitely organized, amazing universe randomly evolved out of nothing. No. That, to me, is a fundamentally irrational thought. There's too much harmony. Okay, so people don't get along. But look at the universe. I've shared with you before, I I came up with a theory one time, which is when it comes to understanding why people do certain things, if you can boil it down to two reasons, it's already both of them. (laughs) 
all right? Which is to say that people are complex and they have multiple motivations. So a lot of times when someone all of a sudden gets it, that might happen in one second, but that's a second that was a lifetime in the making. So it's very hard to bring about enlightenment through argumentation or through convincing or debate. It, it, it almost never happens. And what, what I realized in my own life, thankfully, I mean, it probably took me too long to realize this, was that I decided that I was going to try to stop convincing people of things. All I'm going to do is explain to you what makes sense to me. And then you can believe whatever you want. And when I started with that approach, I'm just going to explain to you what makes sense to me. Somehow I became a million times more persuasive. Because people didn't feel as though they were having their arm twisted. Right. Because... Putting them on the defensive. Exactly. Exactly. Because the implications of there being a God, the implications of there being quote-unquote truth in the world that you can actually access, even though it hasn't been completely revealed yet, but you have access to it through the mitzvot, that has so many reverberations in terms of the life that I'm living right now, right? The nitty-gritty of the choices that I make and what I'm eating and where I'm going and what I'm thinking about and all the rest, that if a person wants to go down the road, they have to really want to go down that road themselves, right? They, they have to really want to do it. And so ultimately, it's got to come from the inside out. And if it's coming from the outside in, in the form of an argument or something like that, it, it's, it's usually just going to fail. And even if the, it jumpstarts the person, usually it won't put enough gas in the tank for them to go all the way, right? Because it will just, at a certain point, they're going to run into their own internal friction, so that's why I think it's just best to be a friend to people. Be a friend. And at a certain point, for a lot of people, they'll go, you know, you're a beautiful cat. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, you're positive, you're upbeat, you've got your problems in life, but they're not overwhelming you. You're, you're thinking about other people. And then they become more receptive to, I want some of that. What do you got? You know, because what I got is just kind of making me miserable. So let's, let's try what you got. And then that often is the process that leads to the transformation of a person, you know? So it's important to say the following. God by design, and this is the premise of creation, and I am not overstating it. I'm telling you from many, many Torah sources right now. The premise of the creation of the universe is the following. That there should be a realm in existence where free choice exists. In fact, beautifully, remember, the first word of the Torah is breishis, commonly translated as in the beginning, the Zohar says the entire Torah is contained within the word Breshis, and the entire word of Breshis is contained within the first letter, the letter Bays of Breshis. Okay, so the letter Bays, the first letter of Breshis, numerically is the number two. Two stands for a lot of things. But one of the things two stands for is free choice. In other words, the entire Torah, if you imagine it like an upside-down pyramid, is balanced on the first letter of the Torah, on the Bays of Rashis. And what does two stand for? I can do this, or I can do that. Do you see how Bays stands for free choice? Bays is two. I can go one way, or I can choose to go the other way. In other words, the focal point of all of existence is free choice. So, in order to preserve free choice, God had to create a world, or desired to create a world, where he could not be proven. 
so that people would have free choice. Now, that's a very dramatic idea that I just told you. Let me tell you why. When most people say, prove to me that there's a God, first of all, it can't be proven. Second of all, that's God's idea that his existence can't be proven. <laughs> you see, what most people think, and this, if you think about it, is quite hilarious, is most people think, whether they can articulate it or not, they think the following. If there's anything that God should be able to do, it's to prove his own existence. <laughs> and since he can't prove his own existence, there is something terribly wrong going on. <laughs> there's something very fishy going on. God must be weak. And what do I want to pray to a weak God for? He can't even prove that he exists. What do I need him for? Can you imagine? This is why it's an absolutely essential thought to understand that it was God's own idea that he can't be proven. And why? In order to preserve free choice. Because free choice doesn't exist in any other realm within existence. God is too openly revealed. And so the angels don't have any free choice. They see, they don't see all of God, only God sees all of God, but they see enough of God, a quantumly higher revelation of godliness, that they go, okay, you know, I, I can't choose anything else, right? Because there's God, right? So whatever God wants me to do, that's what I'm doing. But God thought, okay, I have angels. What about, what about a, a creation that chooses to serve me? That would be awesome. And then God created the entire universe for the creation of the human being who could choose to see God's presence in reality. And that's you and me. And that's why we, believe it or not, are higher than the angels, which is a wild thought. How can the angels who never do anything wrong, how can I be higher than some, some, some divine creature that's perfect? Because they don't have a choice not to do anything wrong. You have a choice. And so when you choose to do something right, even when it's hard for you to do, and you overcome some temptation or difficulty or circumstance and you do it, it says the angels gasp in envy. They're like, ah, oh, it would be so good to do that. He's waiting between milk and meat. Ah, <laughs> oh, he's not working on Shabbos. Ah, oh, he's putting leather straps on his arm for some crazy reason just because God told him to. Ah, I wish I could do it. I wish I had an arm. Okay, now I want to go deeper. And I want to tell you a story, an awesome, 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 awesome story. Okay? And it was this, it was Yom HaShoah this past week. And my son sent me a, a tweet from Joey Rosenfeld, who's got a, a great Twitter account. He's posting wonderful things all the time that get sent to me often. And he tells the story about his grandfather when his grandfather was a child. And it's an absolutely heartbreaking story. Heartbreaking, completely heartbreaking. So it goes like this. He was a little boy and it was nighttime. He was with his father. He didn't know where he was, but it was nighttime in Auschwitz. And he's holding on to his father's hand and he sees in the distance this tremendous bonfire. And it smells like a barbecue, like this a stench of burning flesh, but he, he, he doesn't know where he is. Can you imagine nighttime? You're a little boy, nighttime in Auschwitz. You don't know where you are. And you see this tremendous bonfire in front of you. 
And he said to his father, We're about to receive the Torah. He saw that tremendous bonfire in the distance because it says in the Torah itself that when God revealed himself at Mount Sinai, that the mountain was in flames. And he started thinking. He said, we took a shower before we came here. And and it says in the Torah that all the Jews bathed before the revelation at Sinai. And it says they changed their clothes. And he said, we changed our clothes. And it says the men and the women were separated. And he says, they separated the men and the women. We're about to get the Torah. He says this to his father, whose hand he's holding as he's saying all these words. And he writes, my father just squeezed my hand harder and cried. So I was thinking, let my lot be with that boy. That boy who's in Auschwitz and thinks the Torah is about to be revealed. Let my lot be with him. And this brings us to the next point in this discussion. We haven't changed topics, which is escapism versus transcendence. And I want to explore these two words together with you. Escapism versus transcendence. Because there's a world of difference between these two words. You see, the secular world looks at me, maybe you, and says, this is escapism. He's running away from reality in order to try to make all of the dissonance that exists more acceptable. As Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the masses, right? These guys, man, they might be well inclined, but they're just opium smokers. It's just their opium is, you know, these verses from the Torah or whatever it is just opium, just running away, just trying to escape. None of this is escapism. All of this is transcendence. We're not running away from anything. We're running to the deeper truth. We're running to the deeper aspect of ourself. We're running to the mission of the world. We're running to the whole purpose of creation. It's the opposite of escapism. The opposite of escapism. Now, I want to give you a model so that you can understand this and see it more clearly. So, Torah teaches that there are five levels to the soul. All right? Three of them exist within you, within your body, and two of them exist outside of you and go all the way up to the Kisei covered the throne of glory in heaven, right? Toward the top of heaven. So each of our souls goes beyond us, beyond us, all the way to the highest reaches of heaven. So what happens when you do a mitzvah? What happens when you learn? What happens when you try to get out of your own way? When you try to really like, you know, kind of like fulfill your potential? So I'm going to talk about the process right now. And let's just take one step to the side to discuss something else, and then we're going to get back to this idea of transcendence. But I want you to understand the the fullness of the idea, okay? Have you ever heard the expression, he's got a big soul, or she's got a big soul? Right? And you go, okay, wow, that's really nice. Ah, that person's got a big soul, like, I wish I had a big soul, right? Or do I have a big soul? I don't know if I have a big soul. Maybe I have a big soul. I don't know. So so we, we tend to think of like a big soul is something that you're born with and then you either have it or you don't have it. Okay, so, so there's a story that goes like this, which is, I think, very, very interesting. I won't mention the name, but he's a extremely famous, world-renowned person. And... Reb Shlomo had a meeting with him. 
And I wasn't there. And after the fact, I asked him, I said, I said, well, how, what was it like? How did it go? Because this is like a really interesting thing. This this person is not, you know, Torah observant and he's meeting one of the Torah masters of the world and, you know, two great people coming together. Like, what was, what was that? So here's what Reb Shlomo said, and I think I'm almost quoting him exactly. He said, there's some people with big minds and small souls. And he said, there are other people with small minds, meaning they're not such great intellects, with small minds and big souls. He said, and then there are some people who have big minds and big souls, and those are the leaders of the generation. That's, that's what he said to me. The, the inference was that this person that he had met with was someone with a big mind and a small soul. So, so I heard it. I heard it. He didn't say it directly, but that's what he was saying. All right. Now, again, how do you have a big soul? Is it something you're either born with a big soul or you're not born with a big soul? Like, how does it work exactly? So with that in mind, let me tell you another story. And this story is told about the Sfasemis and how the Sfasemis became Rebbe. Now, the Sfasemis became Rebbe when he was fairly young. His, the previous Ger Rebbe was the Chedush Erem. He was the first Ger Rebbe. And when he was Nifter, when he left this world, it skipped a generation and it went to the Sfasemis. But the Sfasemis was very young. He was the grandchild of the Chedush Erem, the previous Rebbe. And he felt that he was too young to be Rebbe, especially since many of the Hasidim were, were elderly. From his standpoint, like, how can I be your Rebbe? You're like, you know, you're the age of my grandfather and you're, you know so much and, and have so much life experience. And it's not appropriate that I should be your Rebbe, but they wanted him to be the Rebbe. Well, he refused for a period of time. And at a certain point, the, the Hasidim just kept on coming back to him. They made the following argument to him. They said there was once a group of mountain climbers. And these mountain climbers like scaled this very high mountain. And when they got toward the top of the mountain, they saw there was a young boy there. And they said, how did you get here? And the boy explained to them, said, oh, no, 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 I was born here. And they said, that's you. <laughs> you have a very big soul. You were, you were born there, okay? It's not, it's not a problem that you're younger than us. Because you have a giant soul. And we want you to be ready. And the story goes that, that the Svasemis accepted that and, and became Rebbe. And of course, the Svasemis is one of the greatest... Hasidic masters of all time. He was a fantastic Rebbe. And by the way, I'm adding this. I'm sure this Fasemis had many other reasons why he decided to become Rebbe. It wasn't just that story. I think it, it should be said. But nonetheless, once again, you have this idea of you're born with a big soul. That's, that story is great testimony to that. Okay. Now let's get to the point that I'm trying to make. And again, this comes from the Pisgah Sharem from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who says the following. And let's review. There are five levels to the soul. Three levels are inside of you. That's the Nefesh, the Ruach, and the Neshama. And two of them are outside of you. That's the Chayen and the Yechida. Right? And those go all the way up all the way up to the throne of glory. All right. Now listen to this. When you do Torah, when you learn Torah, when you elevate and refine your personality, when you think about other people, when you do actions, right, mitzvot, what happens? You pull that transcendent aspect of yourself from the Chayin, the Yechida, those two levels of the soul which are outside of you, you pull those levels down within you. 
Isn't that amazing? Did you hear that? Very interesting. In other words, transcendence gives you a whole nother idea of transcendence. Usually transcendence, I would think, is I'm getting beyond myself. But but according to this definition of transcendence, transcendence, transcendence is I'm taking the beyond and putting it within myself. Isn't that awesome? That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm taking the transcendent and I'm putting it within myself. In other words, I'm becoming more me. It's the furthest thing from escapism. And I'm actually locking into the reality of the world, which is there's only a certain amount that I can see with my eyes and there's that beyond which I can see. And now I'm in touch with the totality of creation. Now listen to this. A lot of people confuse two very landmark ideas within Torah and the Torah vision. In fact, I'll teach you a fancy word if you don't know it. Eschatology. You know what that is? That is the theology of end of days. Right? So a lot of people get confused because... It's a little esoteric, and, you know, we ourselves haven't experienced it yet, so we don't know. But I'm giving you the normative explanation of it. We have two major points in our future, which, which align with the refinement and the perfection of the universe. One is Mashiach, right? That's when Mashiach comes and the third Beis Amigdash, the third holy temple is built in, in Israel. Those two go together. Because Mashiach, according to Jewish law that the Rambam brings down in the Law of Kings, is that Mashiach is not Mashiach until the third base of Migdash is built. Okay? So that's, that's very important. So if anyone is like, wow, I bet that person's the Messiah, not so fast. <laughs> if you don't see the third base of Migdash built, it's not the Messiah. So people think that's the end of days. Yes and no. According to the Rambam, the nature of reality, when those events transpire, and they will, everything is going to be more or less the way it is right now. In other words, the laws of nature are not going to be abrogated. They're not going to be changed. The Rambam goes so far as to say that there's still going to be poor people. What is the fundamental shift that will happen? Shibud Malchios is going to go away. That means the oppression of the nations. In other words, there will be no problem keeping Torah and mitzvahs. That that is the quote-unquote messianic era. So that's all well and good. Then we have the much more dramatic phase. That's the resurrection of the dead. That's called Techias Hamesim. Now, when that happens, the nature of reality itself will change. That is Judaism 101. In other words, it's not an extra credit thought. That is the Jewish vision. It's very important to say that. You know, a lot of people don't understand that. They're not aware of that, that we have such a far-reaching vision about the evolution of reality, and that that's Torah Judaism. But what I'm telling you is not mysticism. It's not like, oh, that's Kabbalah. No, this is Judaism 101 that I'm telling you right now. Okay, very important, very, very important. Like we believe in one God, we eat matzah and Pesach, the dead are going to be resurrected en masse. Those are all on the same level of, of like premise. When we talk about Judaism, very important to know. Okay, so now let's get back to our model of transcendence, the five levels of the soul. We've got three levels within us, two levels outside of us. You can have a big soul. You want to have a big soul? It's not something that you're born with. Your soul is in play. You grow your soul. How do you grow your soul? By pulling down from the Chayin, the Yechida, 
by pulling down the transcendent level of you into you. Okay, great. Now, what's going to happen when Techias Amesim happens? Those two levels of the soul, listen carefully, those two levels of the soul are going to be inside of you. The entirety of those two levels of the soul are going to be inside of you. And then the whole nature of reality is going to change. Not only that, but now I want you to think in terms of levels. So human being is a miniature universe. But then you have the actual universe. Well, now on the microcosmic level, on the individual human level, we're taking the two levels of the soul that are outside of us and bringing them into us. All right, now let's expand our consciousness and think about the universe itself. The physical universe is like a body on some level, like our body. But there's also a light beyond that. And the light that's beyond that There's a level of revelation beyond that. Remember, all that exists is God. There's only God. God is one. There's only God, right? That level is going to come into the world. And again, just like those two levels of the soul are going to come into our body, this extra revelation of light is going to come into the world. And the whole nature of reality is going to change. And that's transcendence. And we are actually involved in those acts of transcendence. It's not something that's just going to happen in the future. It's happening right now. It's happening right now. With every smile that you make, with every blessing that you make, with every bit that you donate to charity that you make, with every moment where it's like, I could do this and watch a little more TV, surf the internet a little bit more, check out my messages one more time. Or I could find out how someone's doing who I know has COVID or is sick or is having a hard time and I could just say hello and make their day. Every single one of those acts is pulling more light into the world. Okay, I'm just going to wrap it up. Today we're starting a new month. ER is spelled Aleph Yud Yud Resh and that stands for Ani Yud Yud is Hashem, God, Rofecha. I am God, your healer. So we say that ER is a month that has a special blessing of healing attached to it. And you see it in the letters of the name of the month itself. And so I'll leave you with this thought because each of the months has a special character to it. So listen to this narrative. Adar is joy. Nisan is miracles, ER is healing, Sivan is revelation. So let's just do that again. We go from joy to miracles to healing to revelation. Isn't that interesting? The way it unfolds. Joy brings us to miracles. When you've got an expanded consciousness, which is what joy gives you, you see miracles everywhere. When you see miracles, you understand that there is no contradictions in the world because everything is from God who's good and who loves us. And you know what that creates? Healing. And once you're healed, you know what happens? There's revelation. You see it clearly and you see it plainly. So may Hashem bless us that we should know the most rational thing to know is to know that you can't know everything. But to know that you can't know everything means that you've got to really work on yourself. (laughs) And you've got to purify yourself. And from that comes joy, and from joy comes miracles, and from miracles comes healing, and from healing comes revelation. And we should just see the oneness of God. We should see the base of Migdash. We should see just all the beautiful things that God has been waiting to reveal since before he even created the universe. So we have this 
narrative, this energy unfolding in terms of the months, because each month has a different personality. As I've mentioned to you before, one of the difference between the way Torah understands the world and science understands the world is science says time is neutral. There's no difference between one moment and another moment. It's just what you make of it, right? And there is something to that. But Torah adds one extra component, which is that, no, actually, time actually does have a personality. And, and there, there are certain openings that are within time and, and, and that some months are different than other months. And even within an hour, moments within an hour are different from other moments. That, that's how far reaching it is. In fact, if you want to hear something totally like wild, it says Bilaam, Bilaam who, who is considered, it says in the end of days, the Talmud says this, the non-Jewish world is going to say, if we had someone like Moshe, we also would have been like the Jews. And, and the Talmud says the, the God is going to answer them. I gave you Bilaam. In other words, now Bilaam is, is a really like nasty character. He's really like, like really bad, but he was great. He, he really was great. And, and you see from this answer that not only was he great in potential, but he could have been like Moshe. That's, that, that's, that's how much potential he had. Anyway, why am I bringing it up? Because they say one of Bilaam's specialties was cursing. He was like the master cursor. And it says that what he was able to do was to know the exact nanosecond where God's anger was manifest, the nanosecond, and he was able to direct his moment of cursing into that nanosecond, and then his, his curses were incredibly effective. So here you see how perverse he was, that he used his spiritual gifts and genius, so to speak, in terms of figuring out how to parse all of the changing aspects of the nature of revelation in order to bring what into the world? Cursing? Are you serious? Like, that's a negative guy. And of course, he meets a horrible end, and he's one of the villains of creation. Okay, why am I bringing that up? Just to show you, to make you aware of how the energy is not just changing from month to month. Within an hour, it's changing, like zillions of times, right? Okay. But what's the real point? The real point is that, you know, I know some people, and I don't know if you've ever heard this in your life, if you're a believing person, if you've ever heard this, this someone says to you, oh, I wish I could believe. Have you ever been told that? I wish I could believe, or have, have you ever thought that yourself? As though belief were, like, like we talked about earlier, turning on a switch. You know, belief is something that has to be summoned every day. Right? I always quote Rabbi Wolfson, who says that imagine you go up to someone and you ask them, did you eat breakfast today? And the person says, no, I ate breakfast yesterday. Like, what? What does that have to do with anything? You ate, you ate breakfast yesterday, mazel tov. What does that have to do with today? Breakfast is a today thing. So amuna, faith, is a today thing. It's a lot of people think that, I always say that, 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 that faith is like a sofa. Like, once you buy a sofa, you have a sofa. You don't have to buy a new sofa every day. It's like there's something wrong with you if you buy a sofa every day. Like, where are you going to put all the sofas, right? Can't walk into the house. It's like all sofas. You know, all you need is one. But faith isn't something that once you have it, now you have it. And you have it. It's something that's dynamic and changes. Okay. So a lot of people think about joy. That joy is something that, oh, I wish I was joyful like you. I wish I was happy like you. Like it was something that you have. And it's not something that you have. It's something that comes from the expansion of consciousness. You see, the problem is, is that all depression, all sadness, all hate, to use that word, which I'm not a fan of, is, is a product of tunnel vision. 
All I'm seeing is the problems that I have directly in front of me. And I'm allowing them to define me. Right? Who am I? Like you, you can go to a lot of people. Who am I? Oh, I'm the one who has this problem and I'm the one who has that problem. Like they actually allow them their problems to define them. But every person is greater than their problems. But the only way that they can see that is if they have expanded consciousness, which means that if you have the totality, to the extent that you can have this, the totality of your life, the totality of creation, the totality of the universe in front of you, at all times you realize that whatever is going on, I'm just so happy to be part of this. I'm, I Look, I got invited to the party. All right. Those people are laughing over there. Maybe I'm not like, you know, or the photographer is over there and they're snapping pictures. They're not snapping pictures of me, but I'm at the party, you know? Like, that's pretty good. I could go to the park right now, right? I could go, like, there's a lot of things I can do right now. So, you know, when I had my first child, there was a sign. I haven't seen one of these in a long time, but it was this sign over the Hard Rock Cafe on, on uh, near La Cienega uh, in Los Angeles when it was there. And it was a rolling tally of the world's population. And of course, as like a dutiful first time dad, I had my video camera and, you know, we're going to the hospital and making the film that I guess... Everyone's supposed to make. But I couldn't believe it. I looked out of the window of like the little maternity room that we were in. And it was showing the rolling sign of the world population. And I'm talking to my unborn son and I'm telling him, you're about to be that next number. Everyone's had this experience. There's a party you were not invited to and you feel like you don't feel good about it. You got left out. You feel bad. But do you know the ultimate party is this world and the ultimate host is God and you got invited? (laughs) Because if you're here, that means you were on the guest list. You got invited to the only party that really counts, which is existence itself. So... One has to stay in a place of expanded consciousness. And the way you stay in that place is through Torah study, through prayer, and more than anything else, through gratitude. Through endless, 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 endless gratitude. And that makes you aware, it keeps you aware of not just the things that you don't have, but it keeps you aware of the majority of things in your life, which is the things that you do have. So when you're in a place of thanks and gratitude, regular gratitude, you're constantly being aware of all that you have. You see, I'm going to tell you something. It's going to sound like a platitude. And it you know, can go in one ear and out the other. But I'm telling you, what I'm about to tell you is deep. You can see life through the lens of all the things that you have, or you can see life through the lens of all the things you don't have. I'm going to say it again, because it's going to sound like something on a Hallmark card that you just put right back into a drawer. (laughs) And I'm telling you, there's more to it. There's more to what I'm saying than that. You can see life, and this is your choice. This is, this is the, this is like the, the really big idea is you are the one who's going to decide the following. You can decide whether you see life through all the things that you have or whether you see life through all the things that you don't have. And that's your choice. And if you choose to see life through all the things that you have and you stay in this place of regular gratitude, the result, I promise you, the result is going to be expanded consciousness and then you're going to see all of the miracles happening around you. 
doesn't mean that you're going to win the lottery. Maybe you will. Maybe you will. But you will win the lottery because what you're going to realize is that you're swimming in this magnificent ocean. And then what happens from there? You know, you're going to be in the moment. You're going to be like, who knows what happens? Whatever happens is like another gift. 